back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we learn about the journeys and adventures behind a career in science. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by marine biologist and shark whisperer, Vincent Raoult. Did I say that right? Yes, close Good. enough. Close enough. <laughs> now this is, I think this is going to be our, our second episode for 2019, I think. Uh, we're actually recording this on New Year's Day. Uh, so we're both a little bit uh, sleep deprived <laughs> and croaky, but but you're actually sleep deprived for, for a very different reason to me. <laughs> the, the baby yeah. is, is is much worse than nights out. I say. <laughs> and how old is she? Uh, nearly seven weeks now. All right, yeah. how's it going? Good. Pretty well. Pretty well. All things considered. <laughs> now, can I ask about the whole being a father? thing in science now so we've we've spoken to quite a few people on the podcast about women in stem and being mothers yeah. in science and stuff but we haven't really talked about the the flip side of that 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 guys are involved in this too yeah uh well i mean uh i i suppose be, being a, a mother still bears the brunt of the work yeah uh but uh it is quite frustrating as a father that the paternity leave is uh, woeful compared to that of yeah. maternity. So, if in my institution, if I was a woman, and I had a baby, I'd have I think uh, two months or three months full paid mm. leave. Uh, as a guy, I have two weeks. That's that's nothing. Which is which is pretty <laughs> which is pretty rubbish. Um, and so, it's not the institution's fault. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a most institutions are like that but i would love to spend more time with my daughter yeah but unfortunately uh once my leave is up my leave is up so and she, i have to get back to work and she's six weeks old so she's still a tiny she's newborn still a essentially tiny little thing she's but you're back she's to work just a poop and food machine <laughs> um but yeah so it is quite hard but uh thankfully you know academia is one of those professions where you have flexibility Mm. most of the time and so uh, if i want to spend more time with her i can sort of juggle my hours and yeah and sort it out but um it's certainly still not ideal but paternity leave is one of those things that varies hugely just between universities by the side yeah, 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 people that do get a full six month yeah because it's all it's all with the um the the, the clause for employment or whatever it is those rules are mm. um, and yeah it, it it depends what each union manages to convince the uni is appropriate yeah. really um, so it's quite variable uh, Uni Newcastle is a bit of a uh, maybe a, a, a diamond in the rough or something but um, the the all those things are being negotiated in the last six months really uh, so they might get better in mm. the next couple of years um, they might not as well. <laughs> I mean, we talk a lot about women in STEM and the fact that having babies sort of is this huge, big hot black hole of their career and they yeah. can't get research done and things. And I think if we could figure out paternity leave, that would actually give it more of an option for men to be carers I, and for I, women I to totally keep agree. their careers taken over. I totally agree. Because, because Sarah's on a... On a, currently, currently she's on a, my partner, Sarah, she's on a permanent contract at another institution. And so uh, me in my unsteady state in a mm. job, I would much prefer to spend time with Violet and have the option to, for Sarah to mm. spend more time on her career. Especially since Sarah was in a particular stage in her career where um, there were quite a few changes and she took on quite a few responsibilities. So it was um, a bit of a shock to her to to uh, have to take the leave at, at, this, at this time yeah. in terms of a career. So I, I, I do agree, of course, there is totally an, an issue with women in STEM and, and the, the offset that having children has on, on, on careers quite in general. Not always, but in general. And um, I, I think giving the option for the, the, the male, the father, to be the, the guy in the house mm. would, would be definitely... a possibility to making that much more equal but of, of course it's a bit more difficult because you know sarah's breastfeeding so you know it might be a case where the guy would be better six months a six months after the baby's born where mm. the you know the there isn't uh breastfeeding um recommended and stuff like that but but 
Having the option would be fantastic. <laughs> I think this thing in particular, it isn't really a women in STEM issue. This is just a humans in STEM kind of issue. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we talk about the way that we deal with you know, women's career uh, track records and recognizing the fact they have mm. to take a whole lot of leave. I, I, I have nothing to back this up, but I, I imagine that if guys had that same thing in their CV, if they said, here's a two years, but it didn't do anything because I was a primary carer, I wonder if people would be, would be as forgiving of I, that of a guy where people look at that like and go, why be, were you a carer? Yeah, <laughs> I, I almost feel like they'd be harsher on the guy just because there's this perception that the guy should work and the woman should be... Mm. You know, at home, it, as stupid as it is, you know, it's the same reason, uh, you know, male nurses are frowned upon and, mm. and all that stuff. It's because we attribute sort of gender roles to professions and and jobs and stuff like that, which is which is unfortunate. Um, but hopefully, I mean, I, I think it's changing, thankfully, mm. um, on a wide scale with the whole hashtag Me Too movement and all that stuff. Mm. I think, I think in the last two years, you know, the women in STEM and stuff has become a, a huge thing um, in science and um, it's all good and I think in, I think in the end it'll just be positive for, for everyone. Mm. I think the other thing you mentioned too is the fact that employment is irregular for, for a lot of scientists. So yes. as a guy, it puts a lot of pressure on you to be the breadwinner in, yeah. in times like yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that was... For me, that was one of the the, the reasons why uh, we, I mean, Sarah and I have been talking about having children for a while, but it was just a case of I would have preferred to have a more stable long-term employment, even if it's not permanent, because at the stage in my career, I think being permanent would be quite lucky. Mm. (laughs) But having a more long-term two or three-year employment would have been great. Uh, and unfortunately, I'm at a year, yearly rolling contract at this mm. stage, and rolling is is quite generous. I think it's, <laughs> if if the stars align and you know um, Jupiter shines on me or something, <laughs> then maybe I'll get another year. But yeah, um, you know, it's well, it, it seems to happen that the point at which you finish your PhD in science, you go into this. The funny money stage of being essentially what a freelance scientist getting gigs wherever you can. Yeah. Sort of fighting for, who knows, five to ten years to yeah. try and get a permanent position. Yeah. That sort of coincides age-wise with the, the time when people are Becoming starting parents. to settle down and yeah. thinking about having kids. It's sort of a... Which I, think why, which I think is why women tend to fall off after the PhDs. Mm. It's because you have that stage where you have to either choose between a family and a job. And, mm. you know, I, I always think, you know, some people are, are, are very much job oriented and, you know, say that it's the job, you should do the job, blah, blah, blah. But I feel like it's very hard to justify any job to be worth it to, you know, be willing to sacrifice your family mm. or your, your personal well-being or your health and you know, the things that you just enjoy doing in your life as well. I think mm. I think a, a lot of people think, particularly in academia, that you have to give those things up to be successful. And, you know, I, I'm at a stage in my career where I can't really say whether that's the case or not, but I, <laughs> I, I have definitely tried to avoid those situations. And I'm also lucky that my uh, current boss and my, my PhD supervisors were very much encouraging to, you know, take time off when you needed it to... Mm do the things that are important in life because at the end of the day it's it's a job yeah and it's it's not worth losing family and sleepover yeah and not only have you gone back to work very quickly after your kid was born but you had to go off and do field work yeah so and then next month in january i've got at least two weeks worth of field work to do Mm -hmm. uh, which will be very interesting because I would rather not leave my partner alone <laughs> to deal with a baby. Um, but the, it is what it is because the, some of that uh, field work was actually put off last year because other things came up, including the baby. And so uh, now it basically has to happen in January. Um, or the science is starting to fall apart pretty much. <laughs> so, uh, and also, you know, one, one of the other bit of field work is, is kind of a grant slash contract mm. um, from a local council uh, down down south, and so if, if we don't do it, then it looks bad on us, and then the odds of us getting for future employment with them 
or contracts is, you know, lessened. So So where are you going? What are you doing? What's this work? Uh we're going to so one of this one of these projects is something that we're working with the Fisheries Research and Development Corporation, which is looking at the links between uh estuary habitats and fisheries. And we we've been slowly building up a sort of repertoire of, of estuaries in New South Wales and seeing how different habitats like mangrove and salt marsh and seagrasses, how they benefit fisheries from mm-hmm. a from a providing food perspective to those species of interest. And this aspect right now is uh, looking at the Clarence, uh, sorry, not the Clarence, Wallace Lake. Clarence is one of the other places we've done this, but Wallace Lake and going out and Sampling all the different habitats and the uh, the fishery species of interest, and seeing using stable isotopes whether uh, there is uh, one habitat which would be more beneficial to protect uh, for fisheries uh, than than another. Right. So these fisheries aren't necessarily going out getting things in the estuary habitats. They're right. No, so fishing so, in the oceans. Yeah, or in the the mouth of the estuaries. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, you're, you're not going to get a trawler through a salt marsh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but they do place uh, crab traps quite often in in, in mangrove environments, mm-hmm. in shallow environments. But uh, yeah, no. Generally, generally, this is the, this is this is why stable isotopes is really cool for this because you can't really see where uh, a fish's food is coming from. Directly, you know, if you open a fish's stomach, you can't really see that this bit of of mycid shrimp is from salt marsh or mangrove. Mm. So isotopes kind of let you pick out that pathway sort of separately, and so you can look at just anything you want really in an estuary and be able to tell where it's gotten the majority of its food from. Actually, can I put you on the spot? And ask you a, to explain isotopes. <laughs> okay. I think I've had about three or four people on here yeah. doing isotope stuff. And they're really... that uh, We just sort of put the explanations of them in the too hard basket. I don't quite get it. <laughs> it's, it's fine I, if, if you don't have a good no, okay, <laughs> analogy I'll, I'll, for I'll it. I'll have a crack. So, <laughs> so stable isotopes are an awesome tool in, in ecology. Um, not just for the sort of stuff that I'm doing, but also for things like... Uh, uh, paleontology in mm-hmm. particular uh, and coral reefs those are all areas where stable isotopes are really handy uh, now stable isotopes uh, they're different to radioactive isotopes like plutonium and stuff like that that decay so stable isotopes are as their name states stable so they're just there mm-hmm. but what happens is uh, you have uh, isotopes of common elements so mm-hmm. for example you have nitrogen that has, uh, which is N15 is, is what it's called, and it has an extra proton in its nucleus. So uh, chemically, it is identical to a normal uh, nitrogen uh, uh, atom. The difference is it's slightly heavier, and so mm. it's less preferen- preferentially uh, uh, sorted in, in chemical pathways and stuff like that. Um, now, there's lots of difference stable isotopes, there's carbon, uh, so I work primarily with carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur stable isotopes, but there's also oxygen, there's also hydrogen, uh, there's also strontium isotopes, um, and the thing to, to, to remember here is it's, they're kind of like a tool set that mm. you have, uh, they tell you very different things, mm. and, and they can answer very different questions. But in general, the premise is that uh, for stable isotopes, that you are what you eat. Mm. So if I was to take a sample of you right now and I was to look at it in, uh, for example, just carbon and nitrogen stable isotopes, your nitrogen stable isotopes would tell me that you have a carnivorous diet, that you're a very high trophic level, so you're sort of the top of the food chain uh, because you will have very enriched N15 uh, within your tissues. Mm-hmm. And your carbon will vary uh, because it depends what you eat. So if you were a vegetarian, for example, you'd have a very different uh, carbon signature, which is what we call the, the sort of ratio of stable isotopes mm-hmm. is, is a signature. Uh, you'd have a very different carbon signature than someone who, say, was only eating fish from the ocean or someone who was just total carnivore, just eating, you know, meat. Mm. Um, so you'd have very different signatures in those in those regards because uh, that varies a lot depending on which uh, 
which which plant pathway the carbon comes from. So mm-hmm. if if your plant is a C three plant, it will be very depleted in carbon uh, carbon thirteen. If you're from a sort of more marine pathway, you'll have a much more enriched mm. carbon signature. So those all play together. And basically by looking at those isotopes, you can answer a lot of interesting ecological questions, which are very difficult to answer um, in situ. <laughs> good, good name drop. Uh, <laughs> Finally, the podcast name be, made sense. Because, because, for, because there's a difference between seeing a... Uh, fish eat a particular other fish, for example, mm. and saying that overall that fish represents is so important for its diet. Mm. Uh, because uh, as scientists, when we're in the field, we can only observe sort of random observations of, of things happening in ecology. Mm. And stable isotopes are an average of these things. Mm. So they give us a much more ecologically relevant uh, uh, explanation or value for a particular question because they're they're average Mm. of and the other cool thing is uh you have lots of different tissues in your body as you would know i'm sure uh and some of them are basically replaced really quickly and some of them aren't so for example your your bones are going to be replaced a lot more slowly your muscles are a little bit less slow and your liver for example the turnover is a couple of months before that that tissues get uh, gets replenished and as a result, if I also look at different stabilized topes within different tissues, I can look at different time spans as well. Uh-huh. So I can have an average of a couple of years if you look at something like a bone, or uh, a year if it's something like muscle, or almost seasonal if you look at liver. And there's also tissues that are replaced even faster. Um, so you can do a whole lot of stuff. Uh, so you're essentially like building a food web. So you're looking at... The little critters in these estuary environments or you know, organisms, whatever is living there, seeing what their isotopes yep. are, whatever and how that relates they have. To, the, to the potential sources of their diet, which are basically habitats. Yeah. Uh, because most, most different, most uh, estuary habitats, so you've got mainly your sort of water, which is your plankton, you've got your seagrasses, you've got your salt marsh, and then your mangrove. Those, mm. are, those are your dominant habitats in, in estuary environments. Each one of those tends to have a pretty characteristic dominant plant type, mm. and that plant type tends to have a very characteristic signature. Right. So the estuary environments are pretty unique in this regard because it wouldn't really work so well if you did something like this in, say, uh, open ocean, because you wouldn't have those big differences in in main productivity sources. Mm. You can look at differences of, say, pelagic versus benthic, so in the water column versus on the bottom, Mm. because sulfur separates that very significantly, because you have uh, detrital pathways from bacteria that really change the sulfur signature of stuff that's on the bottom. All right. Um, But that's a very different question to... Um, which habitat is it feeding from? Mm. Uh, so if you find, if you're catching fish uh, in an ocean trawler that have stable isotopes that suggest they're uh, in some sort of food web linking them to an estuary, they're not necessarily, It's not. we're not saying that the fish are going into the estuary eating and then coming no. back out again, but no. there's a link there yeah. ecologically. Yeah, yeah. So, so obviously estuaries are a very interesting environment to work with uh, because environmentally they 're hugely important because they they link the land to the sea mm. um, that 's why estuaries are one of the most productive environments in the world, and that 's also why they 're hugely important for the oceans because they provide a lot of basically organic matter which then gets absorbed in the water column by you know initially plankton and, mm. and zooplankton eventually fish so the, so uh, that is something that scientists have been trying to do for a long time is show that link and how important it is. But it's very complicated because it depends on estuaries, for example, is how much water is coming out of that estuary. So mm. obviously if it's not raining much, there's not going to be a whole lot of exchange between the estuary and the sea. Um, but if there's a huge rain event, then you have plumes, uh, river plumes that extend you know, 80 to 100 kilometers out to sea and that's presumably providing a whole lot of, of organic matter for, for those environments and then mm. making it very important. But having that, uh, judging that importance on an ecological scale is really difficult because yeah. uh, 
Um, you know, those those plume events are very short, and so saying that it has a, a long-term impact on the system is is tenuous currently. Mm. So um, you're off doing fieldwork locally on that sort of stuff. Yes. Aren't you off to, was it Vanuatu or something? Yeah. <laughs> so, so in, when was it? The second week of December, I was in Vanuatu uh, for a week. Vanuatu is just to the northeast of New Caledonia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a Pacific island. It's a uh, island filled with beautiful people who are just so friendly, um, and it's just a, a beautiful place in general. Just a bit of bit of paradise. Um, and we were there. My my university University of Newcastle's been going there every year now for I think close to a decade or over a decade. Uh, we go to a place called Hideaway Island, which is a little tiny island um, uh, resort that we work with, and we we try and, and work with the local reef and the local people to try and uh, assess the health of the reef. Mm-hmm. And uh, that reef was hit by a pretty significant cyclone in 2014, I think, which pretty much wiped out all the reef mm-hmm. uh, at any depth above six meters. Um, so we're we're trying to see what we can do to help increase its health. Uh, there's quite a bit of crown of thorn starfish there, which is which is not good for for a reef um, because a lot of the larger fish have been fished out. So there's nothing that really eats the larger crown of thorns. And so basically, my university takes a, a group of third year or second year uh, marine science students, or uh, I think bachelors of science students, or environmental science students, depending on which background they're from, and uh, basically makes them do a short research project in that environment. So mm-hmm. they, they get some good field skills and all that stuff. And uh, basically, uh, since last year, so 2017, not 2018, uh, myself and another postdoc have been going there to try and start some research projects uh, just in that area. And uh, we've been doing a whole lot of different little Things to, to try and come up with some, some cool science mm-hmm. um, that would ideally be stuff that benefits the locals as well because the, the, the local populace are very interested in the health of the reef and what we can do to make it better. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so so that's what we did last week is uh, myself and my boss and and my good mate, we just tried to run little research projects while the, the students were being um, taught some cool coral reef science. In terms of the science you do, I reckon we're probably in the in the same boat uh, in certain things. So on the podcast, I tend to rant a lot about spiders and how <laughs> people have an unfair perception of spiders and mm-hmm. a lot of spider scaremongering. Yep. I, I reckon we can probably empathize relate, with each yeah, other I because totally <laughs> you do sharks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so sharks are... Like spiders, in that they're a stupidly diverse group of yeah. organisms yeah. that are portrayed as being one particular type of organism. Mm. Tell me about that. What, what, what are sharks like? So, uh, <laughs> so I think the latest count is over 560 species of shark currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're discovering new species every year, uh, particularly in the deeper waters, which, which we're only just starting to explore a bit more. Um, uh, targeting that sort of environment for identifying sharks. And of those 560-something species, there's three that have any any human impact. Oh. Um, and of those three, the, the impact, and I'm I impact with quotes <laughs> here, uh, is still extremely minor. Um, so... So uh, is impact in quotes specifically talking about attacks? Yes, and I would use the term shark bite rather than than attack. So nice. it's something that a lot of shark <laughs> researchers are trying to do because, and it's it's a it's a significant it, you know language is very important in science mm. and also when you're communicating with the public because you know you say one word and the media or the public might jump on that word and sort of misinterpret. Mm-hmm. The, the message that you're trying to convey. And the reason that shark scientists are trying to put the term shark bite to the, f- to the fore is because attack has a negative connotation. So it, it, it 
sort of to the person reading it, they get the impression that Shark has a sort of uh, evil intent, yeah. you know, intent on hurting a person. When probably the most widely accepted, it's it's something that's very hard to show, but the the most widely accepted explanation for sharks biting people is mistaken identity or mm. curiosity, something like that. Uh, which means the shark isn't trying to attack a human. Uh, you know, the, the, the problem that sharks have is, and, you know, it, it's an unfortunate problem, is they don't have hands like we do to touch things. Uh, they have very good contrast vision, so they can tell shadows very well, mm. but they're not so good at picking out details, and they're also colorblind for the most part. And that means when they see something in their environment that they have not seen before, the only real way that they can sort of know what that is is by giving it a nibble. Mm. And now, unfortunately, that means if you're a, a person and you're being nibbled on by a two-and-a-half-meter juvenile <laughs> great white, that can be uh, life-threatening. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's actually quite rare for the shark to try and eat a person because they are very attuned and uh, sensitive creatures in the sense that they, they, they know that what they're eating is not part of their regular diet, and so they will spit the person out. Mm. But unfortunately, again, if you get bit by a large shark, uh, you can bleed out very quickly. I mean, uh, this is something we see in our own pets. Like, your, your dog, if it finds something in the backyard, is going to try to see if it can absolutely. chew it. Your, our, our babies, you know, yeah. babies that sit from six months, they start putting stuff in their mouth because yeah. that is a very highly sensitive area. You have lots of sensory systems. You've got taste, touch. Uh, sharks have, you know, electrical sensors in their, in, their, in their mouths that let them sense electrical fields. So there's a whole lot of interesting stuff there that the shark is designed to sort of figure out what is what. Now, the, the interesting thing is uh, there's a hypothesis going, going around for white sharks in particular is the vast majority of bites in Australia, on the East Coast anyway, are juvenile great whites. And they tend to be, uh, and, and the reason this is interesting is because uh, younger sort of newborn great whites, we know they eat fish, and we know that larger, older great whites, sort of fully adult, mature great whites, sorry, white sharks, it's no longer, they're no longer great. Oh. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a common name. I'll ask you about that later. Uh, Go on. <laughs> uh, they, uh, they feed primarily on mammals. So we think that those juvenile sharks, which are responsible for so many bites, are in a stage where they're changing their diet completely. So they've, mm. they've been used to all these tuna and these fishes, and now they're switching to something a bit more substantial, but they don't know what's what, what's edible, mm. what's, what's, what's good. Now, uh, humans make very poor shark's food, and the reason is we're not fat enough. Mm. because. Some of us, <laughs> even no, even even the even the uh, the morbidly obese would not be palatable to a shark because our fat is much less dense than that of a marine mammal. So, mm. uh, marine mammal blubber is it's not like the fat that you have if you know you've had a, a few too many chocolate shakes after Christmas. Uh, it's actually really rigid and tough. So right. you look at a dolphin; it's not you know it doesn't have fat rolls yeah. you know, moving down its body, but it does have over an inch of blubber Mm. and that's extremely dense fat which means it's very very calorie dense Mm. so energetically you know the reason that we as humans like munching on fat is because it's very nutritious it's too nutritious which is why Mm. it's bad for us but if you're a predator then that fat is kind of what you're looking for which is why sharks love dead whales it's because they've got all this blubber that's available mm. that the shark can just stuff itself with and be <laughs> be good to go for weeks on end yeah um, and humans we have very little fat by mm. comparison and so we're not we would not taste good to a shark because yeah. Uh, energetically, we don't make sense to be eaten because it will take a lot of effort and they're not going to get much out of it. We're kind of like the shark equivalent of a, a quail or something. There's Pretty much. a lot of bone and muscle. Not, and, yeah, 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 not really worth the effort. That's totally, <laughs> that's quails down to a T. <laughs> so we've got these 500 and something species of sharks. Is that yep. worldwide? Yes. And there's the three that have a quote-unquote impact. Can I guess... I'm guessing one's white shark. Yep. Or not great white shark anymore. Yep. 
Uh, I'm going to maybe bull shark and tiger shark. Yes, that's really? correct. Yep. All right, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's, it changes quite a bit depending on where you are in the world. Mm. Um, in Australia, overall, white sharks are by far the ones that have been responsible for the most the most bites, mm. uh, followed by bull sharks and then tiger sharks. Uh, if you go to different parts in the world, for example, Hawaii, tiger sharks are by far the most the ones responsible for the most bites. Uh, and if you go to places like, for example, Africa, uh, bull sharks are the 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 big the big predator. Um, They've, so what? Before I forget, why are they not great white sharks anymore? It's a common term. It's the official common name is white shark. Oh, they're no longer great white shark. <laughs> I, I'm sure there's a good reason, uh, but that's just how it is. Um, so yeah. So, so these these guys, like I was saying, kind of tend to represent what sharks are in people's minds. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm guessing that most sharks are actually. Little bottom-dwelling lumpy things, right? Yep. Most, the vast majority of sharks are deep, living ocean sharks that you would never encounter in your entire life. So, two two species that I worked with in my PhD were what are called angel sharks, and they mm. basically just sit in the sand and wait for something to to swim above them before they gobble it down. Mm. So the only uh, time really a human would ever interact them with them is if they unfortunately stepped on one mm. uh, which I think has maybe occurred a couple times in the past uh, or uh, if they see them diving uh, but generally the vast majority sadly actually the the vast majority of the time that humans interact with sharks is through fisheries mm. um, and in general that's how we identify new species of shark is we hang around with a fishing vessel and see what they pull up, and lo and behold, here's a new species that's been fished for decades that mm. we've never formally identified before. How, how do you stop sharks from going into fishing nets, then? Uh, Is so, there some magical technique you might know no. about? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so, so, so in terms of fishing nets, there's, there's a, a growing interest in developing ways to reduce bycatch, because... Uh, what are called bycatch reduction devices, mm. uh, BRDs for short. Uh, they're they're really a, uh, a device that benefits everybody mm. um, because they mean you catch fewer bycatch species, which maybe might be sharks, uh, which means that the fisherman catches more of the species they're interested in by mm. proportion, um, and that means that fisherman has less uh, you know less impact on the environment. And they spend less time sorting through their catch, so they make more money and, mm. and that kind of stuff. So bycatch reduction devices, they're taking on in many fisheries around the world because they're a, a kind of small investment where there's really no losers. Mm. Um, so doing that with sharks is quite difficult. Uh, there are a lot of researchers at the moment looking at trying to find ways to reduce shark bites, shark catches, sorry. Uh, in longline fisheries, which are basically just really long ropes with lots of hooks and baited mm. hooks attached to them. And, and these are mainly looking at things like magnets and things like that. And the reason magnets are of interest in, for bycatch reduction for sharks is because sharks and rays are very sensitive to electromagnetic fields because they have uh, what are they called ampullae of Lorenzini, which a lot of people have probably heard about, and that lets them sense electrical fields. Mm. Uh, but by association, if you can sense electrical fields, you can sense magnetic fields. So if you have a very strong magnet, the idea is that it kind of confuses the shark. So it's not hurting the shark or anything, but it's just... Uh, the, just wigging it out a bit. Yeah. Uh, the, the way that I compare it is, because we don't have that sense, it'd be like if you walked into a room or opened a box and there was a really bad smell in it. Yeah. You know, you, It might not keep you from eating what's there, yeah. because, you know, I'm French, <laughs> I, love, I love my stinky cheese. Uh, <laughs> But it might make you reconsider. Yeah. And so that's the idea behind using magnets to, to deter sharks. Mm. And in general, that hasn't been successful. But luckily, I was involved some, with some research uh, right here on the central coast of New South Wales in Australia. And we actually started attaching magnets to fish traps. Now, there's a number of reasons we think that... Uh, the, the long line bycatch reduction devices with magnets haven't worked... 
but one of them is is just they're not really practical, right? Mm. So you can imagine if you've got a line with a thousand metal hooks on it, and you put a thousand magnets on each one of those hooks, pulling that thing up is going to mm. be a tangled, horrible mess. <laughs> um, so practically, they don't work that well. Now, one of the oldest and most common uh, fishing methods is a fish trap. So you have some sort of box frame, and you have a mesh around it. You have some funnels that go in there and some bait. And mm. basically what the idea is the bait attracts fish, and then the fish can't get out. Yeah. Really easy, really simple, really low cost, uh, pretty low environmental impact as far as fishing methods go, because you just kind of drop the trap in and pull it out. You don't drag anything on the floor. Um, but the problem is the local fisheries, they would catch quite a few blind sharks. And the fishermen that we were in contact with had the impression that these blind sharks would actually scare off fish. So basically they had a negative impact on their catch. Mm. The fishermen can't really sell those sharks, so they just kind of have to fish them out from their traps when they bring them up and chuck them. And, and they, you know, cry at their their empty trap. <laughs> um and so what we did was we get, well, hey, this might be a good good option for trying magnets because those nets are a rigid structure, so putting magnets on them is not really going to be a logis- logistical problem. And because the funnel entrances to these traps are quite small, you can put lots of permanent magnets around it and form basically like a complete barrier. Because mm. the other problem with magnets is the range of effect of a magnet declines... Um, is it declines exponentially? Or, or, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> the, the, it, it gets very weak very quickly. Even mm. if you have a really, really strong neodymium magnet, which is primarily what we use, so mm. like magnets that pull you know, 10 or 20 kilos of force, after about a foot, there's effectively no magnetic steel. not like in cartoons where you can drag no, something from meters away no, with a big superpower. No, magnet. not at all. And so that's one of the reasons we think that magnets don't really work for shark bite, uh, shark bite prevention in, mm-hmm. included, but also things like um, uh, the hooks is because the shark has to be in really close proximity of that mm. hook for it to have any effect. So if the, shark, the, if the shark is racing in to bite that hook, by the time it's bit that hook, it starts to sense the field already and it hasn't had any positive mm. impact. Whereas here, because the sharks have to basically force themselves through this funnel, they've got plenty of time to be in really close proximity mm. to those magnets and, and really feel the force of that deterrent effect. Mm. And we found that using this compared to normal traps, you could reduce your shark catches by about 30%. Um, the other really cool thing is, as I said before, bycatch reduction devices are kind of a a win-win for everybody is the the same traps caught 30% more fish. So right. the, it's a case of the fishermen are catching less sharks, and that means there's fewer sharks in traps scaring fish away, and so they catch more fish. And so is this something that could be developed into some sort of a product? You go and buy a particular magnet-infused well, fishnet? Uh, potentially. Um, the problem is, uh, as fishing goes... Everyone's got their own system mm. that they've sort of tinkered with over the years to be as effective as they can. And, and usually fishermen know what works, but they can't really tell you why it works that mm. particular way because it's sort of developed over generations in many cases. Yeah. Um, so aside from getting the message out there, which we've been trying to do, and, and luckily this particular paper had uh, a lot of success and was, was diffused worldwide, um, we hope that fishermen sort of hear this and go, oh, you know, maybe I can give this a, give this a go, mm. see if it works. Because all you need to do is order, you know, bulk magnets mm. that are waterproof and tie them around your net, and mm. that's it, really. I mean, the, the, the idea of shark repellents is kind of, you know, it's a business it's a huge, plan for some people. And you always hear business. about the new wetsuit with a particular color pattern oh, or a little get me started sonar yeah. bulb and it's... Yeah neck or something yeah. <laughs> and and you never quite hear about them again as being huge success stories right yeah and the reason for that is uh, showing that a thing is a deterrent to shark bite is very difficult mm. so the as far as i know there's there's a paper that came out uh earlier last year from uh, flinders uni with uh, dr charlie Huveniers that looked at different 
shark bite, the commercial shark bite prevention mm. things. So there was there was one which I think was like a magnet band. Uh, there was one that was uh, giving out electrical shocks, and there was another one which is the shark shield or a derivative of the shark shield, which has been around for a while now, which basically lets out electrical spikes into oh. the water column. Um, and of all the deterrents that are on the market now, only one sh- had any effect mm. on sharks. And the one that had an effect was not a complete barrier. Mm. So I think it only reduced um, shark bites on a, on a bait, obviously, not a person, by, by 60%. Mm. So you've still got 40% of yeah. sharks that are going, I don't care what this is, I'm still going <laughs> to take a bite. Um, and for me, that's the big risk with with all these shark deterrents is it just takes one shark that's a bit different or a bit more motivated or whatever, a bit more curious mm. for it to just not care and, mm. and have a bite anyway. Um, and the other thing about these sort of deterrents is it just takes one person using a deterrent to get bit for it to be completely obsolete you know mm. that's a that's a failed that's the worst marketing you could ever have for your product <laughs> right if, if the whole the whole premise of the product is it prevents shark bite and one person wearing it gets bit then mm. i mean as well as protecting people and your uh, fishery stocks yeah lots of this is also about protecting the sharks themselves Absolutely. particularly if they're going to end up as bycatch yeah do you, because you've been doing this research and it's been all over the media and things like that, have you had to butt heads with people that don't understand why we would want to protect a shark? Um, I think I think these days the the tide is turning for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a group of of vocal, very vocal people who are still under the impression that the the shark populations are increasing and that we should call them. Mm-hmm. But I think they're by far the majority. So, again, they're very vocal, and, and for whatever reasons, um, a lot of uh, government officials tend to listen to them mm-hmm. because they're very vocal. But I think most people, you'd ask them in the street, they, they would tend to suggest that sharks are scary, certainly, in most cases, which I think is a justified thing. You know, I, I would think that a lion is scary, not mm-hmm. cute and cuddly, and so... Uh, they, you know, lions are their apex predators in their terrestrial environments, and sharks are often the apex predators in the marine environment. So, I, th- I think being scared is justified, and I think a, a respectful thing to do for such a large and evolved animal. Um, yeah, so I, I think most people acknowledge that sharks are important for their environments, and mm. that uh, we we should be protecting them. Um, but uh, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's one of the, it's it's this case where, same with climate change, really, is we're becoming more and more aware of the issues, but we're not really acting as fast as we should to try mm. and mitigate that that issue. Uh, so you know, sharks are kind of like climate change in that it's it's something that we've been doing for so long that it's almost got momentum. Mm. And so because the sharks are so in general, in general, not always, but in general, they're quite slow to reproduce. They, you know, they, they get to maturity in, in after over a decade, and they mm. only have a couple young every year, a couple pups. Um, that means that recovering from a fishery is going to take decades. And, mm. and actually, a good example of this is the white shark population in Australia. Uh, you know, there was a culling, a, a, a large culling program in Australia for white sharks in the 70s. And as far as we can tell as scientists, and this is with the most cutting-edge research in the world using genetics and catch data from decades, the population still has not recovered after, yeah. after what? It's 19, I think it's the 1980s or 1990s that the population was federally protected. Mm-hmm. Um, still hasn't recovered. Yeah. So that's a federal protection program for over 20 years that has still not allowed the population to mm. recover to natural levels. So for me, the scary thing is, you know, that's for something large and charismatic like a white shark. I mean, you know, a lot of people are fascinated by white sharks, but what about the 
little little cat shark that gets caught by commercial trawlers mm. all the time that no one even knows exists. And, mm. You know, population isn't formally monitored by fisheries because it's not of interest. Um, have, can I ask, have you ever been or heard of the Vic Hislop's Shark Museum up in Queensland? Yes, I have. <laughs> have you been there? No, I haven't. Actually. Oh, I don't, I don't know if I should plug it on the podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> um, look, I, you know, as, as far as I know, Vic was a very prominent fisherman and he killed a lot of sharks. Uh, it, look, it's the same thing as Jaws, right? Mm. There's a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's, it's all because of Jaws that we killed all these sharks. And to some degree, that's true. Mm. To some degree, because, you know, a, a lot of the decline in worldwide sharks uh, populations are driven by illegal fisheries or illegal fisheries that are just not uh, formally controlled. Mm. Um, but the other thing that you don't get people to talk about often is while jaws may have driven a lot of you know culling, um, on the other on the upside, it also started pretty much all shark research. Hmm. So you can actually track the the number of popul- publications of scientific publications on shark research hmm. um, across the decades, and there's a pretty massive spike hmm. uh, in the 1970s because people saw jaws and were like, "What are these things? They're hmm. awesome." You yeah, know, I want to study them and and know more about them. And, yeah. you know, should we be protecting them? Um, so you know, I, I think I think people who are terrified and or or fishing for sharks are just as responsible for the interest in the animals. And mm. you know, you go to your local aquarium now. The kids they don't give a crap about the seals and the dugongs. <laughs> um, they're they're into the sharks. You know, the, you, any any day the Sydney Aquarium, the most you know, busy exhibit is the Shark Tank mm. because kids want to see the sharks, mm. and I, th- I, th- I think that's definitely a, a good indication of where the sentiment is going for sharks. Is mm. people are not so interested in killing them; they're more just fascinated, yeah. which I think is a good thing. I think that the great alternative to something like this, the Kislop's awful museum, is something like the Shark in a Bus yeah. display, yeah. which yeah. is a. a, a traveling bus that goes around with a big frozen shark in it to yeah. teach people about how cool sharks are yeah, and yeah. things. And, and, you know, I've, I've done some dissections for, for public schools, mm. and it's amazing how excited kids are mm. about sharks. And, and, you know, this wasn't, I wasn't bringing in a white shark or something, because yeah. obviously there's logistical problems with <laughs> carrying a 300-plus kilo animal around uh, in my trunk. Uh, but uh, they were still just fascinated, you know. The, you, you had it was it's funny as well because it kind of divided the classroom because uh, shark dissections or necropsies, as they're known, they, they're quite stinky <laughs> activities. Um, and so you have half the class that's kind of put off and mm. you know kind of shrinks towards the back of the room, and then the other half that's like basically I'm having to keep them off the shark because they're so <laughs> interested in touching everything. Um, uh, yeah, I think education is a huge component. But look, again, I, I don't want people to think that you shouldn't ever fish sharks because I think that's a, a an unrealistic expectation currently. So mm. a lot of Pacific Islands in particular or, or little little countries like that um, in the middle of, of the ocean, their, their main source of food is quite often sharks or mm. a large component of that food is sharks. And we can't tell those people that they sh- they shouldn't be fishing ever. Um, and same goes for commercial fisheries, you know, commercial fisheries that have been catching these sharks for decades, they shouldn't suddenly be banned from fishing because they catch these sharks. They, what needs to happen is there needs to be more uh, cohesive management programs to control these fisheries. Mm. And, and we know that some shark fisheries can actually be sustainable. So right here in Australia, we have a few sustainable shark fisheries uh, that are very successful in uh, in the Northern Territories, for example. We have a whaler fishery, which is uh, right. very well managed. And so whalers are similar to bull sharks. And uh, in Tasmania and, South Aust- and Victoria, we have a very sustainable gummy shark fishery. Um, so... I think that's what's. It's important to remind people is there. You know, not all shark fisheries are equal, mm. and if you do manage them appropriately, then there is a, again a, it's a positive sort of 
story because it benefits everyone. You know, mm. the environment's still doing well. The fishermen c- continue their their cultural, you know, employment, and people can still eat the fish that they like to eat. Um, how, how do you catch a, a whaler shark? <laughs> they must be uh, those hardcore fishermen on the planet. <laughs> uh, so if you're doing it recreationally, it's just a, a massive rod and a massive line <laughs> with a massive hook and a big metal lead. Um, but yeah, generally when you're doing it on a on a commercial scale, it's with some sort of long line system or mm. gill netting is also an, right. uh, an option. Now, uh, a, a concern with those sustainable fisheries is bycatch. Mm-hmm. Okay, that that thing keeps coming up, uh, but. Uh, managing fisheries with bycatch is a very complex problem and it's something that's going to get better over time but it's something that requires more research to understand and develop bycatch reduction Mm. uh, methods and and devices. I mean, speaking of cool sharks, can I ask about your Twitter handle? (laughs) Saw Shark Man. So, so the reason the reason that's the case is because my PhD, one of the study the species I studied were saw sharks. Yeah, and they're very l- poorly known, very interesting sharks, and they're so confused. Are these the ones with the big s- snouts, noses. Whatever so they you call have them. they have a rostrum with mm-hmm. with teeth like a saw. Yeah, but they're confused with sawfish, which are the really big ones that you yeah. get in Queensland and Northern Territories. They grow to five or six meters in length. Yeah that are critically endangered globally. So they're a very threatened group of, indi- of animals. But those are actually descendants of rays. Mm. Whereas saw sharks, they're very small. They're about a meter, just over a meter in length. They weigh just a couple kilos. And uh, they're almost totally unknown. So, right. uh, so my PhD was, was looking into those very cool and interesting creatures that were so poorly known. And I'm currently doing some more work uh, on saw sharks uh, with some students from Macquarie University. Mm-hmm. Well, if people want to follow you on Twitter, it's at SawSharkMain. And, and I should probably uh, let you go and, and get back to looking after your kid or probably just get a nap or, and <laughs> while you get the chance. All of the above. Yeah. All of the above. <laughs> All right, well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and, and talking sharks. Thanks, James. And thank you guys for listening. We're on social media at Institute Science or check us out at InstitutScience.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au. 